Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala Rasulihil Kareem abba ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so continuing our, our Quran class, uh, last time we finished Al-Fatiha. <coughs> Excuse me. And one, uh, one key point uh, for us to take from, from Al-Fatiha is that it is a prayer, it is a collective prayer for guidance. That when I'm making the dua of Al-Fatiha, I'm saying to Allah, you know, guide us on the straight path. And I'm saying collective in the sense that even if I'm praying alone, I'm praying for the, at the very least, the entire ummah itself. Okay. And so now we are beginning Al-Baqarah. The goal, the short-term goal, is for us to make it all the way up to Ayah 39. Not tonight, because you see the speed that we've been going at. But by the time Ramadan begins, the goal is to make it from Ayah 1 all the way up to Ayah 39. And so we have uh, a little bit less than a month until until Ramadan begins. When Ramadan begins, assuming we're continuing up to that point, and assuming we all haven't been wiped out by the virus, inshallah that will not happen, uh, uh, we can evaluate what you all want to do by the time uh, we... Get to that point if you want to continue during the Ramadan and such. Nevertheless, uh, let's do some introductory points about about Surah Al-Baqarah. First and foremost, uh, in terms of the historical context, the majority opinion is that Al-Fatiha is a Makki Surah. Oh, uh, 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 Professor Walid, you want to share a note about Al-Fatiha? Go for it while I'm while I'm typing this stuff. So. So Makki versus Madani, and and essentially what we're saying is that according to our sources, um, uh, there are many ways where we categorize when uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, has uh, has received uh, uh, various passages. And there's numerous categorizations. The most famous is Makki versus Madani. And the basic delineation is related to the Hijrah. If the Prophet, peace be upon him, received a passage before the Hijrah, it is normally classified as Makki. If the Prophet, peace be upon him, received a passage after the Hijrah, it is normally classified as Madani, meaning of Makkah or of Medina. Uh, if it's during Hijrah, it's sometimes, depending upon whom you ask, either it goes to Makki or it goes to Madani. This is not related to where the Prophet is physically, peace be upon him. Because, for example, toward the end of his life, he receives Surat al-Nasr, Ida al-Nasrullahi wal-Fat. He was physically in Mecca, but that surah is classified as Madani uh, uh, because it's after, after Hijrah. Now, there are other ways of classification. There are those ayahs where the Prophet, peace be upon him, received it while he was asleep, and those that he received while he was awake. There are those passages he received while he was at home, those that he received while he was in travel. Those that he received in the daytime versus those that he received in the nighttime. But the most common is Makki versus Madani. And the majority opinion of Al-Fatiha is that he received it uh, early, early on. One of the very first revelations he received uh, 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 all the way back in the beginning of the period of Mecca. There's a smaller opinion that he received it twice at near the beginning of Mecca as well as near the beginning of, of Medina. And that there's an even, even smaller opinion that most people refute that's actually came, uh, it came later. Now, what is the point I also want us to take is that a lot of times when we're imagining our tradition, we're imagining, okay, everything is figured out rock solid, but most matters outside of the core, I mean, core would be the, the Shahada, the daily prayers and such, most secondary tertiary matters are more a matter of majority opinion, minority opinion. So, for example, we're all taught that the first revelation that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received was Iqra in the cave. That's a majority opinion, okay, as opposed to the official story. Okay. Now, the official story is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received the entirety of the Quran from Allah Ta'ala over the period of, you know, 20-some years. But majority opinion uh, and minority opinions vary on the revelation of each of the passages. So when we get to Al-Baqarah, the majority opinion... Is, is that it was received uh, 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 in Medina, mm-hmm. give or take six to 18 months 
after the Prophet peace be upon him arrived in Medina, except for the last two ayahs. The last two ayahs were revealed when? Anyone? Whoever wants to. Who's gonna? Who's gonna picture? Yeah, yeah, Ustaz Mahan. Yeah, it just came on the chat. The okay. night night journey. Night journey, Marshall. And, and and Dr. Mahan, please make yourself nice and comfortable. You know, it's, it's, it's good to see you there. Okay, so so yes, the night journey. Um, that the last two eyes are believed to have been uh, have been uh, revealed then. And then what is, uh, and then some of this I know is repetition for, for, for many of us. What are some differences between those ayahs that are categorized as Makki versus those ayahs that are categorized as Madani? Makki ayahs tend to go more into the foundations of faith, belief in Allah, the belief in the day of judgment, uh, purity. Madani ayahs tend to focus, include all of that, but tend to also focus on what in our language would be law and ethics and such. And the environments are different. So much of Al-Baqarah, the most of it, was revealed in the period of Medina. Now, uh, what else is taking place? Uh, there are multiple ways in which Al-Baqarah itself is analyzed or itself is segmented. So it's 286 ayahs. You know that it is the largest surah of the Quran. Okay? The most common name of Al-Baqarah is Al-Baqarah. Another common name is a surah of the two ummas, okay, which we'll talk about in, in, in just a moment. But let's, talk, let's address this issue of names for a moment. Uh, what does a name tell you? What do you think a name tells you if we're speaking, especially in the context of surahs? What do you think? Anyone, again, feel free to talk or to type. What is, uh, so subject matter, theme, context, something unique to that surah. These are all things we would assume that's more of our modern Western training. Okay. Just like if we're hearing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, we're assuming Harry Potter is going to be in there and a Sorcerer's Stone or something like that's going to be in there. The names of the surah, the primary purpose, and foreshadowing, uh, Musa, it's another, another good suggestion, the primary purpose is purely identification. Okay. It may give us a sense of, of, of what is in the context, but primarily it's, it's, uh, uh, it's identification. So Abdullah Mirza is saying, I thought the name was conventional. Yes, uh, what the companions would commonly call it. Sometimes the companions would refer to the surahs not by these conventional names, but sometimes just by the first few ayahs. So for example, if you ask uh, a four-year-old kid, four-year-old Muslim kid, recite Surah Al-Ikhlas, maybe the kid would know what you're saying. But if you say, recite Qulhu Allahu Ahad, bam, the kid knows what you're talking about. And such was often the commonly the case in terms of the names of the surahs and how the companions seem to refer to them. Now, in terms of segmenting the surahs, the most common method of segmenting the 286 ayahs is in Rukus, is into what we would essentially in our language call paragraphs, of which there's 40 paragraphs. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to simplify that into four parts. Okay. So outline of Al-Baqarah. Okay. So part one is what we're calling the, uh, so the names of the surahs did not come down as revelation. The names of the surahs most often are coming from the Prophet, peace be upon him, himself, uh, but not necessarily as wahi in the way we speak of the ayahs of the Quran itself. Okay, so part one is ayahs 1 through 39, and that is what, for our purpose, we're going to call the introduction. Okay. Part two, ayahs 40 through 124. Actually, let me double check. I think it's 123. Um, okay. And I'll tell you in just a second here. Yeah, so 40 through 123, and this is what we're calling the Ummah of Musa, peace be upon him. Okay. Part three is Ayah 75 to 284. The Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him. And yes, you'll notice that they overlap. While we are still talking about the surah, the Ummah of Musa, 
in that we start talking about the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him. It says, though, Allah Ta'ala from Ayah 75 starts speaking to us about them. Okay. And then Ayah 4, or, or the section 4, will be the last two Ayahs, 285 to 286, which is the conclusion. Okay, so that is a simple outline of the whole surah. Okay, so our goal with this class, our primary goal of this class up till we get to Ramadan is to complete up to Ayah 39. And then individually or as a group, we can decide what we're going to do uh, uh, after that. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the Prophet, peace be upon him, has a couple narrations where he speaks about the two lights of the Quran. In one narration, he speaks about Fatiha as one of the lights and the last three ayahs as a second light. In another narration, he speaks of, uh, because of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? Uh, Masab, I don't understand your question. Uh, explain more. In another narration, he speaks of Surah 2 and 3, so 2 and 3, as the two lights of the Quran, to the point that on the Day of Judgment, these two surahs are going to fly in like birds in a line and will also intercede or stand for us on the day of judgment, stand for those people who read them on a regular basis. Okay. Surahs 2 and 3. Okay. Now, what else is taking place? Surah 2 is also looked at as a protection against many evils of the unseen. So, for example, a common recipe for protection from the unseen is to recite 10 particular ayahs. Okay, okay so this is uh, ayahs 1 through 4, ayahs 255 to 257. In the last three ayahs, 284 to 286. Okay. That should add up to 10 ayahs. Somebody can add it. Okay. Now keep in mind, what is ayah 255? Ayah 255 is ayat al-Kursi. Yeah. So according to uh, Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, who is one of the companions, one of the younger companions, whom the Prophet, peace be upon him, regarded as the commentator among the companions, he is asked, what is the central ayah of the whole Quran? And he points to Ayat al-Kursi, okay, Ayat 255 in Surah al-Baqarah. Now keep in mind, what else are protections from the evils of the unseen? The last two surahs, the two quotas at the end, are protections against the, the, the evils of, of, of the unseen. Okay. Now, uh, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala overlap the Ummah of Musa Muhammad because he's speaking directly to us? 100% correct, Musa. Yes. Okay. okay. So, now having said that, uh, the theory of the name of al-Baqarah is that it comes to, uh, it relates to an event. This is in Ayah 67 through 71. I'm not going to write it down because it's secondary for our purposes. This is a story of Musa, peace be upon him, telling his people to slaughter a cow. And so one theory is that that's the name of the Surah is connected to that moment. And perhaps then from that moment, we have some insights on, on human nature and such, which I think is a valid point, which if we get that far, we'll discuss it when we get there. So now having said that, let's talk about part one, the introduction. Okay, so once again, ayahs 1 through 39. I'm going to segment this even further for us. So, so ayah 1 is alif lam mim, which is what we're talking about today. Ayahs 2 through 20. So 2 through 20, is models of belief and rejection. Okay. Ayahs 21 through 29 are foundational commands and concepts. And then Ayahs 30 through 39, origins. That's the story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, and, and the accursed devil and such. All right, so that's the outline of what we are covering then, inshallah, over the course of the next couple of weeks, inshallah. So our rate has been, give or take, to make it through about one ayah a session, which uh, uh, those of you who know my, my approach, I was focused on quality much more than quantity uh, anyway. 
Okay, so now let's jump into Alif Lam Mim. So someone, any of us, um, uh, tell us about Alif Lam Mim. Tell us anything. Of course, the most obvious thing is nobody knows what this means except for Allah. Done. Now tell us anything else about Alif Lam Mim. Anyone, again, you're welcome to speak or type. Are people typing? Are people just staring? What's taking place? Usually what I do with, with undergrads when I ask a question and they're all hesitant to speak and I start drinking water. So last time I asked why the last word of Al-Fatiha is so long. Yes. And, and then so I guess that relates to why is, why is maybe the question of why this one, it's on the flat meme as long as is harder to answer. But Okay, perfect. You said to remind you of that. Yeah, perfect timing, mashallah. Okay. So, so uh, a couple things. So, uh, uh, these are letters of the Quran that is made, these are letters that the Quran is made of, yes. They are arresting the listener's attention. So, huruf al-muqatta'at, tajweed rules, all this is there. Now, where is this coming from? How do we know to pronounce alif lam mim? I'll do it this way for you. How do we know to pronounce alif lam mim as alif lam mim? How do we know? Uh, the marks on top, sure, but suppose I'm somebody who knows Arabic only, but I don't know any Quran. Okay. Um, will I know how to pronounce Alif Lami that way, or would I pronounce it at Alama? Okay. Or let me ask you a different question. If we look at you know how Arabic words, just about all of them have root words, and most often uh, for the nouns and verbs, the root words are usually about three letters. Occasionally they're four, and rarely they're five. Uh, what is the root word that comes from alif lam mim? Okay, like we say, azabun alim. What does alim mean? It means severe. It means pain. Okay, so so is that what Allah was saying at the beginning? No. Okay. So what we're getting here, uh, listening to a chain of bodies back to Prophet in, in Jibreel, yeah, what, what uh, Professor Walid and a few other people said, what we're getting here is also a sampling of one of the most central aspects of the entire deen, the entire tradition, the entire ummah. Like you've you heard that me use that language over and over again. Like we said gratitude is one of the central aspects of, of Islam. Connection leading to relationships is one of the central aspects of Islam. Rahma is one of the central aspects of Islam. And another central aspect of Islam is the continuing living tradition. Okay. Meaning, how do we know to pronounce Alif Lam Mim as Alif, Alif Lam Mim? And really to Abdullah's question, how do we know to pronounce Balin as Balin? Because that is what is handed down. So there may be intellectual answers, rational answers, but the primary answer is because that is what is handed down. Okay. And so another way we can look at this is, for example, uh, not just speaking about, about the first ayah of, of Al-Baqarah, but even think about how to pronounce every single letter. Imagine uh, how large a book would have to be if it was giving us all the instructions written out of how to pronounce every single letter versus someone just teaching you, right? That when you have lam in a word, if it's preceded by kasra, it's pronounced la. If it's preceded by fatha, it's pronounced la, right? Likewise for ra and such. It's handed down person to person. Okay. And so we'll illustrate that very, very quickly. All right, uh, uh, anyone share with us who taught you how to pray? Yeah. So your daily prayers, who taught you how to pray? So they're talking about all or all the, the young Mirza men's parents, 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 Quran teacher, parents, yeah. parents, okay. Friend, book, parents, Sunday school, guy in the camera, okay, masjid, YouTube, Islam, okay, nice. So, so feel free everyone to share. And even those of you who started with a book or started with a video, I'm going to suggest you actually ex-wife, mashallah. I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to suggest you actually really learn how to pray when you're praying with other people. You might have even gotten all the form, all the rules, and all the all the things to say, but you got the rhythm of it by praying with other people. Okay. 
Tabith was still learning. Okay, very good. And so here's the fascinating thing. Every single person in this room, we have 41 people plus me in this room, 42 people in this room. All of us learned from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone going back to the prophet, peace be upon him, even though there's no manual on how to pray. As you and I know, the Quran doesn't tell you how to pray. And then often we say, no, it's not in the Quran, it's in the Hadith. It's hard to find it in the Hadith as well. You'll find little bits of the prayer in the Hadith, but you're not going to find one big narration saying, here's how to pray. And so different cultures might have their own little manuals, but there's no central manual in the way we have the Quran itself. And then you go on Hajj, yeah, now there's YouTube, Mashallah. And then you go on Hajj, and then you see everybody prays almost exactly the same way. Even the distinctions across schools, whether it's speaking of Hanafi, Maliki, uh, Shafi, Hanbali, Jafari, Zaidi, so forth and so on, even those differences, like do I do this or not? Do I do this or do I do this? Those also get traced back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And I'm saying this is literally one of the open miracles of our deen. So not only is it the preservation of the Quran, which includes variant readings of the Quran, because keep in mind, uh, what about Ismailis? I've never seen them pray. Here's the interesting thing about Ismailis, but Aga Khanis in particular, in contrast to some of the other branches, even the Aga Khan is teaching the Ismailis to start praying the way Sunnis pray. Like if you talk to many Ismailis who are my age or older, the push is much more on social service, but now you're seeing the Aga Khan even there to push the Sunni form of prayer. Or a push is not even the right word, to teach the, the Sunni form of, of, of prayer. But think about this. Not only is one of the open miracles of our tradition is uh, being the, the preservation of the Quran, which includes not just all the words, not just all the letters, but even the spaces in the letters. An easier open miracle is the fact that all across the globe, we all pray the same way. Even those differences that might confuse us, do I do this or that, are also part of the preserved prayer. Okay. Evidence of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as an illiterate person who is not supposed to have known uh, names and letters are also structural units in exactly the same way, atoms and units of matter. Uh, I would say that's a good interpretation of the letters, but it's, it's a, a secondary point that we often uh, add. But you see the point, that another of the central living traditions, the central aspects of our deen, is this person-to-person -person preservation and dissemination of the tradition across lands, across levels of literacy, illiteracy, across socioeconomic classes, across time, okay. whose manifestation we see right before us. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let's take the uh, av uh, Avan as well. Avan seems to have a little bit more in terms of variation, but still for much of the Muslim world, it is, it is the, 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 the same Avan, but it seems to have more variation than even the prayer itself. Okay, so, so, uh, Professor Walid is saying Quran has two names. Uh, I'll wait for you to finish typing that, but I'll keep going. Okay, so now, uh, the one that is constantly read, okay. Uh, so now when we speak of Alif Lam Mim, uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. Okay, uh, when we speak of Alif Lam Mim, the question becomes, why is Allah Ta'ala using Alif Lam Mim here and not Hamim, not Noon? It's handed down. It is beyond rational. Okay. It could have meaning. It could be arbitrary. We assume it is not arbitrary. Okay. But it could have meaning. Okay. Now, if I'm accepting that I don't know what it means, but Allah knows what it means, then I've begun the act of submission. I have begun submitting my intellect. Okay that one of the first steps in developing a relationship with Allah, we said all the way at the beginning, was to get to know who is Allah by way of his names, by way of his attributes. And we started with the name Allah. Then we went to Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Then we even spoke briefly about Malik or Malik of, of the Day of Judgment or the Day of Recompense. And then from there, we started speaking in the second half of the surah. Now we are asking him on behalf of all of us for guidance. And now it is said that the rest of the Quran is a response to that request. And what we see just by how we take Alif Lamim, one aspect of the guidance is to become part of the Ummah, 
in terms of what the Ummah is handing down as the team. And a second is this intellectual submission. Could it be here for the exact purpose you've described that it demonstrates the miracle of dissemination of Islam? I believe that is a possible reason. Uh, I think that's, that's an excellent observation, but it doesn't tell us why Alif Lamim as opposed to Hamim. That's the point that I'm raising. Does it make sense, Sammy? Yep. Okay. And so we've begun to intellectually submit ourselves. Now, in addition, one of the points that Professor Al-Ghul mentioned is that uh, these are Arabic letters. This is what else we can, we can uh, uh, derive from it. And as we see, the Quran speaks of itself many times that the language of the Quran is Arabic, of course. Okay. Now let's move from Alif Lamim, or let's take, actually, let's make this a, a little bit more interesting. This is, I was debating whether to do it, but let's do it anyway. Those of you who have a Mus'haf or a translation of some form in front of you, uh, take a look at the second ayah that comes right after Alif Lam Mim. Okay. So we have Alif Lam Mim, and then we have, this is the book, No Doubt, Guidance for Those Who Have Taqwa. Okay. Now, suppose you go to Surah Ali Imran, Surah 3, which begins with the exact same letters. And then look at how, look at the ayahs that follow that. So we have Alif Lam Mim, and then we have Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayyul qayyum, that Allah, there is no God except for him. He is the alive, the eternal. And then what do we see? He revealed unto you the kitab with truth, confirming what came before it, even as revealed, he revealed the Torah and the Injil. Okay. So now let's go to, let's jump forward to another surah that begins with these disconnected letters. Let's go to Surah Yunus. Surah 11, Alif Lam Ra. So disconnected letters, but different letters. And then, Tilka Ayatul Kitab al Hakim. These are the ayat of the wise book. And then let's go to the very next surah, Surah 11. That was Surah Yunus, Surah 10. I'm sorry, Surah 11, Surah Hud, Alif Lam Ra, Kitabun Uhkimat. Okay. So, a wise or a book that has been made wise, okay, that has been made to judge. And then Surah Yusuf, Surah 12, Alif Lam Ra, I should do it slowly, Alif Lam Ra, Tilka Ayatul Kitab al What do you notice over and over again? After the disconnected letters, in almost every case, we speak about the book, about the Kitab. Okay. There are a few exceptions. If we go to Surah 19, Surah Maryam. Okay. okay. So big set, set of letters. And then what? Dhikru Rahmati Rabbika Abduhu Zakariya. So it's a it's a reminder or a mention of the Rahma of your Lord on his servant, Zakaria. Okay, no mention of the book. And then we have, let's go to Surah Rum, which is Surah 30. It also begins, Alif Lamim, and then Ghulibat the Rum. So the Romans have been conquered. Okay. But again, no mention of the Kitab. Now, what are some things we can infer from this? That we have about 29 surahs that begin with disconnected letters. Sometimes it's one letter, like noon. Sometimes it's two letters, like hamim. Sometimes it's three letters, like alif lamim. And then even more, like kaf, ha, ya, In most of the cases, there's some mention of the kitab. So one way this is commonly read is that it's as though we're beginning with the vague or the ambiguous, these letters that may or may not have meaning, and then going into something clear and categorical, the book, which is sort of the experience of guidance, that you're starting from this unknown and ambiguity, and guidance helps you to see what it needs to be clear. Okay. But then we have these exceptions, the case of the Romans and the case of, of Zechariah. Another way that might make everything common is that all of these are manifestations of the Rahmah of Allah that the most 
primary way of the rahmah of Allah for the believer is through scripture. That the better I know scripture, the more I will be able to appreciate the rahmah of Allah. And another way, what's the story of Zakariyah? He sees Maryam alayha salam with food, doesn't know where, it got, where she got it from. That's in Surah Al Ibran. And then he feels motivated to go to the member and he's praying for a son. Okay. Another way that the Rahmah of Allah manifests is when we're asking for it. Dua. Okay. A third way that the Rahmah of Allah manifests is how he makes the world happen okay. through the events of the world, meaning. Even in terms of what is happening right now, in terms of the plague, social, uh, social distancing, and, and this, this pandemic, which is wiping out more and more people. And I think all of us are having the experience that the number of people that we're hearing about is getting closer to us uh, who have been infected. Still, we want to bring ourselves to figure out how to see this as a rahmah, the proceedings of Allah in the world. So these are different ways that, that the relationship between the disconnected letters connects with what I has come after it. But the point I want you to think about is that it doesn't seem to be random. There seems to be a consistent pattern. And that's how we see over and over again. Uh, Dr. Mahan says, is there a connection between the number of surahs that begin with the huruf and the number of letters in the Arabic alphabet? That is, that is a common notion that 29 surahs begin and then we have, uh, we have 29 uh, uh, letters of the alphabet, yeah, Allah knows best, but that is also a common thing that's taught. Uh, the, essentially what I'm looking at is that what wisdom would we derive from that? Perhaps that's an indication, you know, confirmation of just 29 letters of the Arabic alphabet, but I'm, I'm interested in what you would say. Dr. Ghazi, uh, what would you say to the recitation of Alif Lamim is sign of submission as there have been attempts to offer interpretations of letters which would imply a highly intellectual enterprise? The default is the submission. Meaning there's all kinds of fascinating theories that, all right, the surahs that begin with an alif as one of the disconnected letters seem to have this context. The surahs that begin with a ra have this other content, content, not context. The surahs that have a ha have such and such content. But again, going back to Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, he was asked, what does alif lam mean mean? And he says, ah, that Allah knows all. Uh, I don't know if he said the same thing for hamim. Other commentaries seem to say that Hamim is a manifestation of Rahmahullah, but that, that's also beyond me. The primary issue is the, is, is the submission and the, the uh, discontinuing living Ummah. Okay, <clears throat> that brings us then. Uh, Ankabut does not mention a book. Oh, really? Okay, very good. We, we, we can also take, uh, I'd say, Mustafa, see if, uh, if what we've just said so far connects with what we're saying here, because Ankabut, I believe, also says, you know, do people think they're going to make through life without struggle? I think that would also be a manifestation of Rahma. Uh, Dr. Mahan, you just raise your hand. Yeah. On this, um, you know, when Ibn Abbas was asked about what this means, I read this in the um, one of the Ahmadi translations. They actually follow this um, tradition where he actually says, you know, God knows best, but he says, Anallahu a'lam, <laughs> which is Ana for the Alif, Allah for the Lamb, and A'lam for the Meme. <laughs> and the first is the first letter of the alphabet. The second is the middle of the word. And the last <laughs> is the last uh, letter in A'lam. <laughs> and so, but that was assumed to be his, perhaps, um, conjecture. <laughs> and not necessarily something that he had from the Prophet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we have the, uh, something similar in, in Sunni sources, and so, yeah, inshallah, Allah knows best. Thanks for sharing. Uh, uh, Dr. Al-Ghul says, distinguishes the Quran from other forms of poetry. That's, that's a good question. Uh, there are other theories. One is that this was a common tradition in Arabic poetry at a time. Another theory was that, uh, that there might be something related to the author of, of the writer and such. Uh, those sources seem to be uh, uh, speculative, but, but, uh, but uh, Allah Ta'ala knows best. Okay, so having said that, now let us get into the next subsection, which we said was eyes two through 20, models of belief and rejection. And so we have three models here. We have the people of Taqwa, which is eyes two through five, the people of Kufr, which is ayahs six and seven, 
and the people of Nefaq, which is ayahs 8 through 16. And then 17 through 20 is metaphors of the above three. So ayahs 2 through 5, which is what we're looking at right now, is the people of Taqwa, the Muttaqeen. Okay, <clears throat> so these are these are passages that we're very familiar with. So after Alif Lam Mim, we have Dharika Kitabu So this is guidance for those, or this is the Kitab, no doubt, guidance for those who have Taqwa. For some basic points, uh, Dr. Al said one of another of the mentions, another of the names of the Quran uh, is Kitab. There's a few other ones. There's Nur. There's Thikr. But kitab is one of the most common. And we commonly translate kitab as book, right? When was the Quran in book form? Anyone know? There's the, the commonly narrated story and then the less commonly narrated story. So much earlier, so after the Prophet's death, yeah, peace be upon him. So, so I'm going to give you a couple of levels of the the evolution of the product uh, the preservation of the Quran. So phase one is Prophet peace be upon him. Okay. So what do we know? What are, what is narrated to us about the era of the Prophet peace be upon him? Number one, what we all know is that he is receiving the revelations as he starts getting more followers, uh, especially those who can write. He starts assigning certain secretaries to write down what he has. The most prominent of these is Zayd bin Thabit. What was Zayd's religion before he became Muslim? Anybody know? Came to the Quran to become a muttaqi, but the Quran seems to expect me to be a muttaqi already. Uh, that is a very good point we'll get to. So there's two theories. Uh, one is that he was Jewish before he became Muslim. Another, he was an orphan raised by Jews. And he seemed to be literate. And so the prophet, peace be upon him, would assign him to write down what he has received of, of the Quran. And as you and I know, this was a verbal society. Uh, writing was secondary in, in, in terms of their society. And paper would have been very expensive. So as you and I know, this is something that we're taught uh, uh, even for those who were raised as Muslim into, into childhood, they're writing on skins, they're writing on, on uh, pizza, pieces of bone. There are a few people who were writing it all out, uh, but he did have people who were secretaries writing it out. Uh, by the time he dies, <clears throat> the entire Quran's revelation is complete. We know that every Ramadan, he would repeat the Quran to Jibreel alayhi salam. And one particular Ramadan, he is told to repeat the whole thing uh, twice, recites it, and then told to recite it again. And he takes that as an indication that he's almost done. Yeah. And that was his last Ramadan. So when he dies, the Quran is not in written form. And then Abu Bakr becomes the Khalifa. And when he becomes the Khalifa, many of those people who had just become Muslim, many of those tribes who had just become Muslim in the six months to a year prior to the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, start announcing, we are not going to pay zakat anymore. And so this leads to a very large series of battles that we call in English the battles or the, the, the battles of Ridda, of apostasy. Uh, Furqan is also another name of the Quran. This was a message that was sent to me. Yes. Uh, 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 because literally the only places uh, where Islam was still left when Abu Bakr takes over is Makkah and Medina. Everybody else is is uh, is uh, is now being identified as a renegade. And so Abu Bakr takes on the approach of those people who are refusing to pay uh, to to pay the zakat. He declares war. And that's a whole set of stories. What I want us to focus on is in these battles, many of the Hufas, many of the people who have the Quran memorized uh, are dying off. And so Omar is talking to Abu Bakr saying, we need to write down the Quran. 
And Abu Bakr is saying what we would expect another companion to say, which is, how can I do something that the Prophet, peace upon him, did not do? Okay. That is the loyalty or scrupulousness that the companions and the family of the Prophet, peace be upon him, had. How can I do something that the Prophet did not do? Omar keeps saying this is a khayr. In our language, it's a good innovation. Okay. And Abu Bakr gets convinced. He appoints Zaid, that same secretary, to write out the whole thing. Okay. Um, and Zayd initially refuses, but he has to listen to the Amir. And so they bring in Hufaz, and he writes out the entirety of the Quran into what are said to be 114 individual folios. So imagine 114 separate little, little uh, uh, collections representing each surah. That is given to Hafsa, the daughter of Amr, the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. And then uh, when the Quran was compiled, do we know if people who memorized sections of the Quran came together to scribe, or were there already multiple hafaz? There are, it seems to be that there are already multiple hafaz. Then Omar later, he, so that is completed by the time Abu Bakr dies, which is two years after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Then Omar becomes a Khalifa, and now this nation has been restored by the time Abu Bakr dies, but now we've become under Omar Empire. And then after him, Uthman becomes the Khalifa. And now you had Arabs of many different dialects. You also had non-Arabs. And so there was a need to standardize the script. So Osman appoints Zayd again to write out a standardized script. Now, in terms of the numbers of copies that were formed, it seems like we have multiple different narrations. Upwards of 40 to 50 copies are written. And of those, the 25 that are best or most clear are, looked, are kept, and the others are burnt, meaning they're going through to see what's most clear. And of those 25, they keep the best six or seven, and the rest are burnt. Yeah. It is said that of those six or seven, that still in existence, one is the one in the Tokapi Palace, one is in Tashkent, which I think was debunked. One was found in the archives of the Sultan Hassan Mosque in Cairo, which I think that was also debunked. Meaning, we may still have copies of those old editions or not. Even in the one in the Tokapi Palace, some of the pages have gotten withered. Uh, but the point is that it was put into full book form, completely written under Abu Bakr, so within two years after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and under full book form under Uthman, so we're saying within two decades. But for the common Muslim, that information is completely irrelevant. Because what was then and what is today the primary method of preservations, it was memorization, right? That's still the primary method of preservation. Question from Stephanie and Leith, why were preservation instructions part of the wahi? This is a really good question. Uh, well, Allah Ta'ala takes the responsibility upon himself, uh, but uh, there's a lot of things that can be inferred in from the instructions, but the basic point is that how, is the, how are things preserved? person to person. Even when we get to end times, the, the, uh, the prophet, peace be upon him, is saying one of the signs of end times is knowledge is going to go away, not by knowledge evaporating, but the, by the carriers of knowledge dying off. Again, it's all preserved in the people. So that's how civil kira'ats uh, survive today through transmission. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so this is leading to another point. I've been making reference, uh, we're gonna stop right here with this last point. I've been making reference to variant readings. This is a point you're gonna have to pay very close attention to, which is also part of the reason why I don't let people share these recordings, because we have kira'ats, oops, sorry, I said that privately. We have kira'ats, and then we have ahruf, okay. So if you go into our sources of the Quranic sciences, one of the things that we're taught is that the Quran is revealed in seven different schools of recitation that then become 14 schools of recitation. So for example, if you see someone from Medina reciting the Quran, if you listen to that, versus someone from Morocco reciting the Quran, you're gonna hear some differences. Okay? These are different schools of recitation. That's the part we're familiar with. The part we may not be as familiar with, but the reason I'm sharing this, uh, uh, what he means, Revelation Arabic, yes. The part that I'm sharing, uh, which uh, it might be difficult to digest, is also this idea of ahruf, okay? Now this is not dinner time conversation. If you bring this up at dinner, you're gonna, you're gonna create a big mess. 
Good. So the prophet, may peace be upon him, would receive revelation, according to our sources. He would receive revelation, and he would go back to Jibril, alayhi salam, saying, I have people who speak different dialects of Arabic. May I have this ayah in different words? Okay. Not just pronunciation. Pronunciation would be, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ versus قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Two different pronunciations. I'm saying different words. And then in these narrations, these authentic narrations, Jibreel alayhi salam would come back to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and say, Allah Ta'ala has accepted your prayer, and he gives him an ayah, the same ayah with different words. Okay. Usually the difference is something like tu'minuna versus yu'minuna. Which, from an Arabic perspective, we say it's the same word. But what's the literal meaning of tu'minuna versus yu'minuna? You believe versus they believe. Okay. Often, the difference would be in the preposition that is being used. Right? Is it ala? Is it an? Is it ila? Okay. Um, it would be different words. And so we still see this in, again, for example, if you see a Quran, an authentic Quran published in Morocco, you will see some subtleties and difference of words versus a, a mushaf that's published in, in India. They're both the preserved Quran. Okay. Keep this point in mind. And then, can you repeat why the need, uh, why they needed uh, these differences instead of sticking to what was originally given? So, for example, there's a story of Omar. He's listening to someone else from his own tribe reciting Surah Al-Furqan. And Omar says, that is not what the Prophet, where'd you get this from? This is not what the Prophet gave us. And he says, I got this from the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then Omar takes him to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And, and he has him, you know, the Prophet says, okay, you recite. Uh, he has Omar recite Surah Al-Furqan, and, and the Prophet says, yes, that, that is what I gave you, peace be upon him. And then he has the other person from the tribe, you recite, yes, that is what I gave you. Okay. Now, to think about this, for that generation, the Quran had to be absolutely native to their tongue. Okay. And so for some people that have subtle differences in their tongue, they're given subtle differences in, in, in the wording. So a comparable point for today would be, what do you feel more comfortable with? If I say I took my phone and I put it on the table, or if I took, put it upon the table? Okay. Um, almost identical meaning. But for some of us, on would be better. For some of us, upon would be more native to us. So for the companions' generation, the Quran was to be absolutely native to them. For you and I, that difference may not be as much of an issue. That's one variation. Another type of variation would be for a few words, a letter would be, would be changed. And you still find this in some mushafs that are being printed, where it'll have a word spelled with sod, and then it'll have a little scene above it. And I'll look, for, I'll look for an example of that. That's still you find commonly. And then what's also very commonly is just the pauses. The pauses will also vary. And we have that in this surah right here, in this ayah right here. So those of you who are looking at the Arabic, if you're for, uh, familiar with Mu'anaka, uh, it's ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ Rayb, And then you have fihi in it, and it's three dots before it and after it. And then what is that rule in terms of recitation? Either you stop at one or you stop at the other. So it's like you have two sentences built in one. Now, in terms of the variant readings, we don't have variations like, okay, you're never going to have anything but one Allah, right? You're never going to have anything except you have to pray, okay? It'll be other things more often in, in things that are secondary to give, uh, that may give a subtle uh, difference in very, very tertiary meetings. Like you believe versus they believe. You believe in the unseen, they believe in the unseen, things like that. Okay. But this is a thing. Part of the reason I'm sharing this is that if we were to look at the Muslim views, or Muslims who are raised in America, views on, the, on our sources, for a lot of the last few decades, one of the questions that always comes up is, okay, are hadith authentic? Okay. Should I follow hadith? A lot of that comes from the Western academic study of Islam. Okay. Now, one of the things that, but in the Western academic study of Islam, the view used to be the Quran is 100% preserved. This is one of the things that Muslims did correctly. But that is also being critiqued based on our sources. Our sources say there's variant readings. 
but this is not something that is commonly taught. Qira'at is taught. Ahruf is not taught. And give your time to digest it. We're still saying the Quran is preserved, right? We're just saying that in some cases, it's a couple words. Now, there are questions about how much of that is still being preserved. Because if you look at the, the Mus'haf of Osman, you don't see any, any uh, diacritics and such. That we'll touch on tomorrow, inshallah. Okay, so we'll stop right here. We talked about Al-Baqarah. We gave an outline of Al-Baqarah. We talked about the names. And then uh, we talked about the first ayah. Any last questions before we call it a day? Just for clarity's sake, uh, Omar, uh, I'm assuming you're you're using book and and written form interchangeably rather than as two different entities? So, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, otherwise, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu use of uh, Zayd ibn Thabit and asking him to write down uh, the ayahs as he is uh, receiving the revelations would make no sense. So I'm using uh, Kitab um, first just to raise the question of does it mean book in terms of the Quran? What we'll get into tomorrow is Kitab is also used for any prescription. We'll also see tomorrow, inshallah, another understanding of the kitab, uh, a recurring theme throughout the text is Day of Judgment, that this is where everything is going to be uh, expressed. Um, but written, yeah. Um, but not necessarily only written. Prescription is probably the most common. Yeah, so you are saying that uh, written as in utilization of pen and ink did happen during the time of the Rasul Sallallahu Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this we especially see in the Hadith sciences, that, uh, that we have many narrations of people who are writing down and have notebooks and such. The common, the common way we, we imagine is that it's all spoken. But yeah, meaning the default style of the community and personal community was uh, things were not written. Okay, any other questions or thoughts, comments, reflections? Could you please send yesterday's recording? Yes, inshallah. Give me one second here. Uh, Mahan, uh, it says you're raising your hand. Yeah, quick question. Please. Maybe for tomorrow. You know, the example you gave of Yu'minuna or Tu'minuna. Yeah. This isn't something necessarily that, you know, a different dialect would need. This is something that you, you know, when you write it uh, without the dots, the words look the same. And so it could have been also different uh, readings because the manuscripts, it's something different, which is a different kind of uh, take on the history. Yeah, so. I would agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And uh, once again, uh, some of these seem to work for people. Some of these don't seem to work for people. Um, but these are all the recordings. All right. Uh, we will stop here then, unless I missed any other questions. Hey, Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka na tubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa na tubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness, wa na tubi ilayk, and we turn to you. Okay, may Allah tell reward you all, inshallah and keep everyone safe, and we will continue, uh, inshallah, tomorrow.